Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we have a special guest, John Harris. This is not a live stream for once that I'm doing an interview, but a pre-recording. So we do hope you stick around. Uh, John Harris is the host of Conversations That Matter and author of a couple of social justice books as well that I'm sure he'll have a chance to plug. And you know, you should check out his content. He does excellent content. Uh, he's definitely one of the early your voices to speak out against social justice in the church. But today we're going to be talking about a topic that he loves, a topic that I'm also interested in very much, and that is history. Specifically, we're going to focus more on American history, uh, you know, because that's probably more his specialty from what I gather from a lot of his content. But uh, we're going to do the interview with John Harris that you don't really get uh, at a lot of other interviews that he does. That, that That's my intention for this interview. So, but before we get into that, you know, if you like the Evangelical Dark Web, least you can do is subscribe. Uh, the intermediate thing you can do is check out our newsletter, which is goes out pretty much every day because we have at least one article every day, it seems. And the most you can do is subscribe to our Patreon-like system uh, at our website, evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. All this is linked in the description below. It's a Patreon-like system. We don't use Patreon because they censor. And so we built our own. So with that said, let's kind of dive into this interview. Uh, John, uh, you said on a recent interview that I saw that something to the effect that the American church has seen worse days. So I would like to kind of touch up on that. Uh, if so, do you stand by that? Or was I correctly assessing what you were saying? And if so, what days has the American church seen that are worse than today? Well, first of all, Ray, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I appreciate it and love the work that you do as well. I've uh, referenced your website when people have asked about uh, certain things and you have things uh, very itemized. So uh, bad actors uh, in the church who are pushing the needle in a leftward direction, compromising theology. So I appreciate that, uh, all the work that you've done. Uh, as far as um, the question you asked me, I'm not sure exactly what interview it was. So I don't know the context. Of uh, Brian Babes. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't remember what I said uh, and what she asked me, but um, so was I specifically talking about the American? Uh, I, I think you're church? talking about like today, the church, the church in America has seen worse days than we're currently facing right now. I think you said yeah. something along the lines of that. If so, well, you know, what would you say are the low points sure. of American church? So uh, the church in the United States. I, I don't know exactly what I was thinking when I said that I might have been. Um, I might have meant to say, if I said it incorrectly, that the church as a whole, uh, from its inception, so for 2,000 years of history, it has seen darker days in, in many ways. And, and that's probably what I meant, uh, because okay. I was thinking about probably early church persecution and uh, what happened during the Reformation. And in American history in particular, I mean, there certainly have been uh, times in which believers or different sects of Christianity have been persecuted to some extent. You think of um, the early American colonies and how Baptists were treated. In Virginia, uh, you were fined if you did not, um, if, if you didn't give to the state church, which was Anglicanism. 
uh, if you, uh, I mean, there was, there was a level of persecution depending on the region you were in. Uh, if you were in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and you deviated, uh, depending on how far you deviated, you might get kicked out of the colony like a Roger Williams or an Ann Hutchinson. So there was certainly less religious toleration. Uh, that changed, I think, that mostly in the South, that changed um, at, at an earlier period than it did in the North. But uh, eventually it became, by the time of our War for Independence, there was a lot of religious toleration in the United States. You still, in the, like nine of the 13 colonies, had to be part of a state church in order to hold office. And I think Massachusetts uh, at that time, they were still taxing uh, their residents uh, to support the church. But um, but things were moving in a direction where Christ sort of this bland uh, general Christianity was the tone. And we've seen, um, I think, compromises in the church, certainly since that time. I think the Second Great Awakening, what's referred to as that, was a time of great compromise, especially where I live. I live in New York, and there's a region in New York uh, just north of me called the Burnt Over District. It's mostly the Finger Lakes area. And the reason it was called that was because there were so many revivals in that area that it was burnt over with revivals. It was just uh, people uh, going. It, it was the fashionable thing to do to go to these rallies. And uh, they were big emotional affairs. And uh, of course, that's where Charles Finney had a lot of You're impact. Right. But you had a lot of um, cults coming out of New York as well uh, at that time. The Mormons come out of New York. Jehovah's Witnesses later on come out of New York. Um, if I think about it, I could probably come up with other examples. But there, there certainly was a dark time uh, in my estimation, even though everyone would have said they're Christians with the compromise going on with theology, with it being so watered down. And we're dealing with the consequences of that today. Of course, in New York, it's mostly secular now. But depending on what era you're looking at in church history, you can even in the United States, you can certainly find uh, an ebb and flow. Uh, you know, during the Civil War, there are these great revivals that happened. Um, and, and they happened in both the North and the South. I think they were probably more potent in the Southern armies. And it kind of, uh, even though the South would have been a, a fairly Christian region, it made it even more solidly Christian. And we still think of it as the Bible Belt to this day. So we're dealing with the effects of history and what happened in certain regions didn't happen the same way in others. Uh, so as far as uh, dark times, I don't know that we've ever seen what we're seeing now, though. Even the fundamentalist modernist controversy, uh, th that did not affect, I think, as many people, as many denominations, organizations, churches, as we're seeing right now in this woke downgrade, if you want to call it that. At least you had the fundamentalists saying very clearly during the modernist controversy that what was happening was wrong. They stood against it. There was a clear delineation. I don't see a clear delineation today, hardly at all. You could probably count on one hand the amount of uh, big name pastors who are taking a stand. And even the stands most of them are taking are not the most clear. They're not willing to necessarily name names. They're not uh, clearly identifying why social justice is wrong. They might have a, a sensibility about it, but they're, I don't see a lot of uh, leadership. I mean, I, I can think of some guys that I think have done a, a, a good job or a better job. Uh, and I'm very grateful for them, like uh, Bodie Bauckham or John MacArthur. But I mean, that's one in a million right there. So uh, I think we're in the darkest days personally for the church in the United States right now. Yeah, because a few years ago, I think I wrote an article back in either 2017 or 20. Yeah, 2018, probably. But it was about 2017. 
and kind of like the state of the church in America. And that in 2018, I'm like, it could go either way. We're in this kind of holding out period. We're not sure whether it's going to get better or even worse. But right. I would have put, pegged the worst time as 100 years prior, kind of going up into the 1910s, because that was a pretty dark time for America, if you think about it. Uh, you know, uh, just before the World modernist. War yeah, during World War One as well. And just, you know, America got wrecked in that decade politically. Yeah. And I don't know if we've we can ever really recover from the damage that that decade did to the United States. But uh, yeah, I did a worse number on England and, and on Europe in general uh, by the church supporting World War One as a, um, a righteous thing to do really discredited the church, the institutional church in Great Britain In the United States. We weren't in there as long and we didn't have uh <clears throat> as much of that we definitely had some and billy sunday for example saying that uh the i forget how he phrased it but uh, encouraging people to participate in the war effort because it was their christian duty i mean there were things like that that were happening but it wasn't like as pervasive as an institutional church because we didn't have right. an institutional church i guess the um, modern equivalent of that is like all the church saber rattling over ukraine that you see on like christian post <laughs> yeah but you know which i think america you know went into world war one under highly dubious circumstances because i believe the official reasoning had more to do with the zimmerman telegram which it sounds pretty fake on its surface yeah the i don't zimmerman know how note. yeah it's, it's it sounds really and, fake like the yeah. idea that the germans would ask mexico during a civil war or very shortly after a civil war mexico was a failed state uh during world war one to attack the united states seems pretty fake yeah i think I, I mean the world war one you, you could talk about like the geopolitics of it and the uh, foreign policy uh, i think as far as though the church is concerned um you're right in that the social gospel was a popular thing this is right after rauschenbusch uh, the Rockefellers were funding it for decades at this point. Right. Uh, Rauschenbusch's book had books had taken off and he was even writing during World War One, but he, his popularity had already started. And so there there was a battle afoot. But I think that's the reason I say today's darker was because at least to back then there was a battle. You had R.A. Torrey publishing the fundamentals and they were uh, clear. If you I don't know if you've ever read portions of the fundamentals, but. Uh, they're really good as far as um, very clearly defining what's the gospel, what's the current threat to the gospel. Of course, Machen was a, a just a seminal figure who was also very uh, apt, able to uh, theologically uh, identify the problems that were approaching the church that we don't have it today. That, that's the problem. We're leaderless. I think if we weren't leaderless, we wouldn't have this problem as much, but we just are. We have to face the music. That's the truth of the matter. Um, the leaders that we do have that are really spot on and good tend to be at lower levels. They're not national leaders. They're uh, leaders of local churches and there's faithful local churches. I mean, as large as it gets is John so, MacArthur. Yeah, that's about is that that's your ceiling pretty much. Uh, and, and like I said, there's Vody Bauckham. I mean, but even, you know, I gotta be careful even how what I say, because I don't want to unfairly criticize people or ministries that are doing otherwise good work. But I've said this before, if you are, if you're like battling on, uh, let's say the prosperity gospel front, which is a, a front that we need to be battling on and you're ignoring the social justice threat and you're not 
you don't see that as a priority. And so you're going to sidestep it. You won't invite people to your conference that have gone too hard after it. You, you want to still kind of make nice with people in that camp. You want to attract the followers of woke uh, preachers. Then you're, in, in my opinion, you're, you're compromised on a certain level. And I would say conservative evangelicalism is largely compromised. I'm talking about the non-woke um, on our side. There, there's a, a business model. There's an institutional model. There's an unwillingness to rattle the cage too much. We really need people who are willing to say what needs to be said, name names, uh, compare things to the truth of the scripture that aren't into the, the politics. The politics is insane on our side uh, as well as the other side. But our side is uh, very focused on who should and should not be listened to by those in the pews. And really what we ought to do is just kind of let let the market decide that, if you will, let, let people decide who they want to listen to. And let's just judge the the pastors and Bible teachers by the Bible standard. Just use that as your guide, not, yeah. not petty things, I, not associational things. Ironically, we are a hierarchical people. We need kind of a hierarchy. We shouldn't. I don't think we should need this well, unbiblical category of a hierarchy yeah but we require it to do anything and it I, I you know politically we need a leader to do anything apparently and even well, the, the as issue far is as opposing even, yeah the existence of hierarchy but on what level we require a hierarchy we have yes. to have a president it has to be a central hierarchy it has to be at an upper level uh so it's there's less um allegiance to our local leaders sometimes as there is to those on a national level, which actually makes no sense and can't be sustained. The, the people we don't know, we give more faith, we put more faith in and give more money to sometimes than those that we know in our backyards uh, who are doing good work. And so uh, that, that's why one of my messages has been think local. If you want yeah, to actually change, you have to think on a local level. Yeah, I've been writing a lot about that uh, in an upcoming book that I'll announce soon enough. So are you public school or homeschooled at all? <laughs> uh, well, so both because uh, through high school, I would have been homeschooled, um, but okay. I went to a community college and then uh, state college and then uh, I, I went to two Christian universities. So uh, so so I guess my public school would be that that time in my undergrad years, if you want to call it that. But in, like through high school, I was homeschooled. And you got to imagine, like, I don't know how much history classes you have to take to get an undergraduate degree uh maybe one or two uh, to, to get an undergrad in history or to a general no no general uh yeah i don't think i had to take any for my aa i i all. didn't because i had ap so that might right. be the reason why because that counts as an arts or humanity credit so you need more of you know that wide category but i guess the topic that i want to touch on right now is how little history people are actually taught in schools yeah, so, not much. It, I, uh, I mean, if my experience is any determiner uh, of that, I, I would say I ended up getting an undergrad in history. But um, even with that, I don't I think I only had to take on an upper level like four or five history courses. It wasn't all that many. Even and that was yeah, a history. You strike degree, me as the kind so. of guy that had to go out of his way to learn history. Not just within yeah, school, but also outside of school. Yeah, I didn't I didn't learn any hardly anything in uh, my undergrad when it comes to history. And I I actually didn't, I never took a, I haven't taken a history class since high school because I took APs, but I can tell you pretty much everything that we were taught. World history is su such a high level, but in public school education, you don't learn Roman history. 
pretty major, pretty seminal for Western civilization. Yeah, so you're, you're not required to have Western Civ then. But you you start out with, you know, in sixth grade, we did ancient history. Well, where does ancient history end? Rome, theoretically, right? But you don't get all the way through the end of the curriculum in a course of a school year. And that's the biggest problem with history classes in public schools. They don't get through the curriculum. So there's these massive gaps in the what people are taught. And that's right. to say nothing about what they remember, but let's just judge people by what they're taught uh, for a second here. And they're not taught Roman history. Then it's medieval history in like seventh grade in, in Maryland. And medieval right. history starts post fall of Rome and then goes forward. So there's gaps there as well. And then American history starts so far back. You know, you're going to learn like all the different tribes and areas and stuff like that. That if you get past the Civil War in an American history class in, you know, uh, public schools, you're above average there. You, are, you, you got past the Reconstruction period, you know, and into the Gilded Age. Like most people don't know the Gilded Age uh, of American history. So their history stops at the Civil War, basically. Right. And the only 20th century event historical event that's taught in public schools and probably every single public school in the, in the United States, the only 20th century history that's taught is the Holocaust. And that's why we have Godwin's law. Everything t goes back to Hitler because that's the only history people yeah. know and they don't even know it well. So, yeah, I mean, history uh, today is mostly a sequence of cherry picked events and people who can be used to propel a political agenda today. So it's not about actually learning uh, in a way that confers identity, so heritage or uh, facts and uh, the experiment, experimentation of history where we can actually see ideas and policies work their way uh, and actions work their way through a people uh, so we can avoid the mistakes and uh, copy the, uh, the things that were good. Uh, it's it, none of that is part of the historical education today. It's purely a political thing. And so I'm actually positive about students not learning history, as weird as that sounds in public school, because I know what they're going to get is going to be garbage. And it's it's not going to actually bring them to any good places. It's supposed to serve uh, as a way to persuade them to vote for Democrats. Basically, <laughs> that's that's how I view it. And you know, I don't say this as just someone who is spouting off. I mean, my um, my brother's a history teacher in the public school system. I mean, I, I know kind of how uh, from just talking to him, how it works, at least in my state. Uh, I know that um, I, I mean, my experience I had even in community college, I could already see this happening. And there's the testimony um, all over the country. We, we actually have a chapter of Moms for Liberty. The leader, uh, founder of it is at my church. I mean, it's disgusting what's happening in the public schools. So. Um, it's, you know, as much as I think people need history, uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't want them learning from these Marxists. <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. you got a point there. And, you know, for the record, I had really good history teachers and, you know, one of the things that I did was I took an, in, I did an independent study. It was supposed to be on the Arab spring, but it really turned into a contemporary Middle Eastern history, which, you know, it's really fascinating, gets you really informed on a lot of what goes on in the Middle East. And, you know, this was pre-ISIS, but I knew what ISIS was. I'm like, this is mm -hmm. the main Syrian rebel group is the Islamic State. 
So right. I was able to really do that. And it's because you study the history of all these movements and it ultimately culminates into what we're seeing today. But you're, def you're definitely right. I think mm. uh, what I spend my time on YouTube watching, you know, I do watch yours when I need to get stuff done for my day job. But yeah, I watch a lot of history channels on YouTube. Mm. I watch a lot of history videos. YouTube has some excellent resources that are just far better than anything you'll get on television or in the classroom. Yes. I, and I watch like history documentaries on YouTube and then I watch one on Amazon Prime and it's just like the YouTube did it better. Uh, yeah, and it was no, that's shorter. typical. Yeah, the nerds, uh, if you will, are much more. Uh, they're they're much more um, just knowledgeable, and because they're interested in the subject, they're also much more exciting to listen to, uh, and they put more excellence. Into yeah, their was work. it the American Battlefields YouTube channel? American or Battlefield Trust. Yeah, like they, yeah, they sound enthusiastic when they're talking about what they're talking about. So it, uh, they do some good content, but but. Uh, yeah, I would listen to reenactors over professors any day of the week and twice on Sunday. It's they're just far more, in general, uh, knowledgeable about the events that they're uh, they're covering. So I guess the next uh, topic I want to talk on talk about is something that you said recently. But I wanted to ask how did the new how did New England go from Puritan to Unitarian? <laughs> well, that's that. Oh man, that probably has multiple answers to it. Uh, it happened very quickly. It, in fact, um, contemporary accounts that I've read uh, say, I, I think I, I'm remembering one, um, I think it was Julia Ward Howe or her brother, I forget, um, Lyman Beecher, it, it was Lyman Beecher, but um, it, it, the testimony was that essentially it happened within a period of about like 15 years. It was very quick that congregational churches went. And without the internet. And, and, and yeah, without the internet. Newspapers. <clears throat> I mean, they had newspapers, yeah, but yeah, maybe um, they had newspapers, but it was probably a lot more the effect of European higher criticism. There was two different reactions to it. The South in general instituted uh, William Paley's apologetics curriculum to combat European higher criticism. And uh, and they had colleges, contrary to popular belief, actually, the South before the Civil War. Uh, had more colleges it wasn't many more but they had i think one or two more colleges than existed in the north uh, and, and a lot of per capita that's significant it's very significant yeah they they so yeah less population more colleges or, or institutions of higher learning uh, a lot of southerners also went to the ivy leagues uh like you know they just ripped down a few years ago i remember john c calhoun i think his name was on a building or something but uh you know he he went north for education that was a very typical thing if you're military you went to west point so um, there was a split in the country where Southerners tended to go in one direction and Northerners tended to go in another. And the question is, why? Why did Northerners so readily adopt and the just um, put a European higher criticism? The audience. What? You're, you're talking about the federal period mostly. Uh, I mean, it, it there's overlap. It, it goes before and after to some extent. But uh, you're talking about like 1800 to, you know, in a broad, we're talking broad here, uh, right before the Civil War. So 1820s, 1830s primarily, um, and and it was probably between 1810 and 18, you know, 35 when Unitarianism really gained a strong grip uh, in New England. It was it was happening before that, but it really like went on steroids during that time period. Uh, so there, at that time, you have a lot of uh, ideas coming out of Germany, especially 
but also England. You have um, uh, eventually Darwinism comes to the United States, but there's also these proto-Darwinist ideas that are floating around. And they were adopted in the North more so than they were in the South. And they affected our Ivy League. So the manufacturing centers for pastors where you know, institutions that were even started to produce good Bible-believing pastors were now filling the minds of future pastors with all these notions. You had a um, system, I mean, Jonathan Edwards complains about the halfway covenant where you have all these unconverted people that are members of the church. And that creates a lot of confusion, I think, and probably um, to some extent helped help this whole uh, process happen. Uh, all these people that claim to be Christians that aren't. And, uh, and, and some people would probably point to the Puritan instinct. They would say that uh, because Puritans were wanted to be the shining city on the hill. They focused a lot on uh, their own efforts and what they could do to bring about this state of affairs on the earth, that even though their theology was reformed and they believed in total depravity, that their, their the way that they functioned, practically speaking, uh, contradicted that or eventually contradicted that. And so, I mean, I've heard this argument before that uh, essentially, even though they said they believe man was evil, they practically speaking, man was capable of good and uh, through his own efforts. And so that was what led to Unitarianism being adopted, uh, that man through his um, knowledge and thinking and philosophy and, and these uh, kinds of fields were able to ascertain truth. And so man's knowledge became more authoritative than the word of God. And that shift was what enabled uh, the popular sentiments coming from Europe, like transcendentalism and Unitarianism to gain foothold. So those are like three different answers to the same question, but uh, I would tend to favor, I, I would think there's actually truth to all three of them. And I would tend to favor that Puritan instinct because today, if you go to the same regions, the great, 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 great grandchildren of these people, the Puritans, they're still Puritans <laughs> in, in, in their sentiments. They still, now they have a completely different idea of what man is, a completely different theology but they're still about the business of trying to make this great society. It's through now liberal social action. But if you're a heretic, if you're someone who doesn't go along with their social justice agenda, then you know they, they, they would wanna cast you out the same as a Roger Williams. I mean, you're, you deviate from the plan. They want conformity. I saw that with COVID. They're very, they, they march in lockstep way more than people who are more independent thinking in the South and the mid-Atlantic states. So, um, so I think that, probably undercut their theology eventually. And this, this notion of we can purify uh, eventually was what enabled them to kind of get around their theology and put too much stock in man's wisdom. So I hope that helps at least maybe points in the right direction. So one of the things that you've been very critical of is the response that conservatives have had to the 1619 project, which is kind of like a New York times initiative uh, and one of the responses that came out of that was like the 1776 initiative or something like that. Something Mission, that yeah. was a, a very Trump uh, created thing, I guess. So right. what is your alternative to the 1619 project? Well, it's not out yet and it's not even really uh, created. And, and there's some essays that have come in. It's going to be uh, kind of like the 1619 project, a series of essays. That'll be a book. And. Lord willing, a conference and then a documentary. Um, and I'm hoping a, a curriculum as well, but it's called the 1607 Project. 
And the reason 1607 is picked is because that's the date the Jamestown settlers, um, the Jamestown settlement was uh, achieved. And it's when the English gained a foothold in the what is now the United States. And so uh, there are comp comp competing dates. Obviously, 1776 is one. 1620 is actually one when the pilgrims came. Uh, and I have my reasons for thinking that those are not the dates that we should be probably picking. And I, I view it this way. It's like if you're tracing the headwaters of a river, you want to um, you, you want to take the main the source of the stream. You're, you're tracing the source. You don't want these tributaries and saying, oh, that's what it, what America is. Or yeah, certainly 1620 contributes what the, pilg the pilgrims have contributed. There's no doubt. Um, but what is fundamentally speaking, what are the roots of? Uh, America? When did America start? And America is essentially an extension of mostly the British Isles, uh, the culture that exists there or existed there. And um, there's a good book called Albion Seed about this by David Hackett Fisher, where he traces these different folkways from England to the United States. And it accounts for many of the differences that we see between even ourselves so that that's my alternative, and um, I just reject the proposition nation concept, which you see that in the 1619 project and the 1776 commission, and and so I don't actually see them as that different fundamentally. Now, they're they would have a different probably perspective on what should be done today in the United States, different political interests, but uh, the people behind the uh, 1607 or the uh, 1776 project. A lot of them are, are what would be called West Coast Straussians or um, Jaffaites. These these are people who were are very influenced by uh, this uh, notion that the United States is more of an idea than it is an actual tangible people, and that live in a tangible place. And so that's how they get around some of the negative things that they don't like about early America, like slavery or that women couldn't vote or. Uh, labor laws that uh, eventually, um, you know, affected children. They could work for these twelve-hour days, or you know, you pick whatever um, issue you want. We just shoved that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, well, th the way that the sixteen nineteen project deals with it is that they'll say that all this, these negative things that are archaic and evil and wrong, and you know, our grandfathers are horrible people for it. They say that that is. Um, that's part of what America was, but America is struggling to overcome these things. And, and we have a great long march through history today where we've come to the point of even recognizing uh, today of all days, uh, same sex marriage and transgender rights. And I mean, they put it all in one bucket that equality is, is making its long march. And so the American ideal or the American uh, creed uh, is you know, you can see glimpses of it at the beginning, but we're slowly realizing it. And so the 1776 wouldn't be that much different in that they would just put a stop earlier. They wouldn't want to go as far as perhaps LGBT stuff. They would say that uh, the uh, American uh, creed would have started. Probably they would have rooted it. I, I'd say what I've read about the 1776 commission is in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Uh, and then that gets picked up by Abraham Lincoln and slaves are freed and women get the right to vote. And uh, and then we have the civil rights movement. And so Martin Luther King Jr. almost becomes a proto founding father in, in this scheme. And so does Abraham Lincoln when they don't really belong historically and sequentially. They don't belong in that category. At yeah. All. Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> is probably the most cherry picked figure in American history. We really cherry picked what we think he believed. 
because you know i don't think that the letter from a birmingham jail and the eye of a dream speech are really a good summary of his beliefs and ideals and they're certainly not really were you know when he was assassinated. Well, they're not comprehensive yeah it's not it's not a fair summary so I mean, certainly the i have a dream speech one of the is one of the most important speeches in all of american history there's no doubt but um uh, but martin luther king jr himself uh, was you know had marxist sympathies right uh, was as far as you know from a christian standpoint obviously a, a heretic on multiple levels people don't even talk about his ecumenicism really uh they there's there's multiple things he said that were just not in accordance with orthodox christianity uh and his character of course was it's also very overlooked but um my well, point in though, a is few it, years we'll figure out what was in those tapes because i think they're going to be that's right uh, eventually yeah. my point though is that he's not a proto founder he's not someone who took T thomas jefferson's ideas uh and you know thomas jefferson's smiling in his grave realizing mlk has finally achieved what he couldn't in his lifetime because of barriers that existed uh thomas jefferson would not have i mean king would have been a foreign that they would just been so outside the scope of what the founders would have thought at the time that they uh, existed that it's not even worthy of uh putting the same putting the two in the same category really and, and but that's what the 1776 commission does uh, because they're committed to this concept that america is also just an idea it's just, and it's universal idea it's a universal uh, cry for freedom liberty equality and this is an idea that we sh we've um, exported to the rest of the world we can make iraqis little americans if they just adopt our notions and the foundations of our government and democracy they'll become just like us and it's so foolish. It's it, a lot of the structures that we have in our government were they're the way they are because we inherited an English common law. We, we inherited the centuries of fine tuning of tradition of biblical principles being distilled and then applied. And if you ignore that, that process and say you can just go plant it somewhere else to a people that's not ready for or not, uh, it, it just doesn't suit them. It doesn't, you know, Muslims in the Middle East. You're not going to get America by just planting democracy and watering it. Uh, and, and that's one of the failures we've seen is trying to nation build with with this idea. Um, you, you don't get little Americans by adding a little democracy and freedom or something. Yeah, I don't get the concept of let's build another nation at our ex at our expense rather than build our own nation. It's just. It, that's a really anti-american thing but well they would say no they say you're anti-american because america's yeah, an idea and it's the idea of freedom or if we got to fight them over there so they don't fight us over <laughs> here but yeah the taliban didn't commit 9-11 and we spent 20 years fighting them yeah it's, so, it's a weird thing too when you're a native american not in the sense of uh you know indigenous person but you're someone who's born in the united states and yet your patriotism or your your americanness that uh identity you have is questioned if you don't go along with stopping the spread or joining the, the war current thing. or yeah th that's what it means to be an american now is it, to obey orders and, and to it's so ironic to see people with ukrainian or israeli flags just say you know question the americanness of someone else it's like no if you have another flag in your bio don't i don't care what it is you're doing well, americanism wrong both sides do it too both sides will question whether you're an actual real authentic american um i i saw this i went to cpac what was it 2020 and i remember i walked in and it said america versus socialism that was the theme or, or i think it was socialism yeah and i'm thinking i'm like 
I mean, I, I get it, I guess. Like uh, socialism is not something we want in America. We don't want, want those set of policies. But if we become socialistic, then are we not America anymore? Like it, we just cease to exist. I mean, is California then? Because they're socialists, basically. Are they not American? Um, the USSA is what we become. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're born here, if you so so it's this is a complicated thing. And that's why I think ideology is so simplistic. It's like you're either for freedom or you're against freedom. You're either for equality or against equality. 1619, 1776 can both wield this politically. But in reality, if you were to say, if you were to define what's an American, it's a much more organic thing. It's something you see when you know it when you see it. It's not something I can necessarily give you an itemized list. Like I can give you um, certain characteristics of what would mark an American, but I can't give you like a, they must meet these six qualifications and that's what makes an American. Uh, an American is, I would say, someone who is um, from this country uh, or has, um, at the very least, they've become a citizen of this country. So they've gone through this process. Uh, you, you, that that has to be there somewhere along the line. Um, and, and so they're in a region, they're part of a people. But beyond that, what are the characteristics of that people? Well, traditionally, we would say, well, you know, they they have a Christian belief system of some kind, whether they're actually Christians or they just respect the they're, they're cultural Christians. They respect the mores and the laws that we have based on Christianity. They're a Christian in that sense. And so, so that that's part of what being an American is in some way. And I can't give you a percentage. I can't show you. I, I, I can't really articulate it beyond that other than to say that um, it's it's a respect for the, the heritage that we had on some level that you, you can't like like an American isn't someone who um, I mean, you can have put it this way, bring it down to a family level because that makes it more simple. Can you have a child, let's say, in a Christian family who's not a Christian? Yes. Is that child part of the family still? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, if that child rebels against the family and says, well, we, I don't agree with Christianity anymore. I don't agree with uh, the traditions of this family. I don't want to celebrate Christmas anymore. I don't want to come home for that. I, uh, I'm not going to listen to the music that my mom and dad listened. You know, whatever. Um, is that Does that child get kicked out of the family? No. But you can say, you can identify that as a, a rebellious thing, that, that that child is is cutting off a part of his identity that was passed down to him. He's taking something valuable and he's casting it aside. He doesn't become not part of that family anymore. He's still part of the family, but there's a tension there. And I could say that with the modern left, there's a tension. You guys are casting asunder all the things that were true and valuable uh, th that gave you the blessings that you're actually enjoying today. You know, that child who's rebellious benefited from the stable mom and dad. And all the economic benefits that come with that and, and all the rest. So um, so I'm not into going and questioning people's authenticity, whether they're an American or not. But here's here's the main question. This is what I'm working to. That family, do they cease to be Christian then? Are they not a Christian family now that their son or daughter has rejected the faith? Are they not? Um, do they cease to be a family if uh, their son or daughter rejects some of the family values and moral principles that they've passed down? No. That the family is still a Christian family. You just have a son or a daughter in rebellion. And so what is America? Okay, now bringing it to a, a national kind of uh, level, is America Christian? I, I could say yes in that sense, that America fundamentally, its laws, its institutions, its mores, its history, they all trace back to a Christian a, a fountain, if you will. And that's still 
present in our society, despite what the things we're doing to try to destroy it. Um, now, it doesn't mean that we don't have people rebelling against it today and that they're not Americans necessarily, but they are they're in rebellion against what they've been given. And so I think the difference between, like, let's say Donald Trump and the elites on in, in both parties is that Donald Trump recognizes that fact. <laughs> he says we're, like he started off his campaign uh, with we're going to say Merry Christmas again. Right. And then people gave him all sorts of flack for it. And then, of course, you know, he ended the whole thing with him standing with a Bible outside of a church because he was trying to signal that this is part of who we are. This is part of our identity. It, it didn't, didn't change just because we have a bunch of rebellious children. So, yeah, that's, that, that's one thing about Trump. Like, even if he's not the perfect embodiment of what it means to be an American, he at least recognizes that as good. He recognizes that as kind of America's identity. And I don't really have a doubt that he loves America, even if the 1776 commission or whatever is not the best way to solve the tangible well, issues that America, we're saying. Trump doesn't Trump is not ideological. He and he's not yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. he's got guys around him that I don't blame him for having like uh you know West Coast Straussians running a lot of his uh you know like uh I'm trying to think of who I'm thinking of here. Um people like Michael Anton I, I don't blame him for having those guys in positions of authority because there just simply aren't enough people of the paleoconservative type, which I would be in, to do those jobs. So he has to pick from all these neoconservatives to run stuff. And so I, I don't think Trump is. Uh, but here, Trump's instincts, though, are very much very uh, pro-American. Yeah, he's very pro-America, but he defines America as the people. It's the people and the place that they live in. It's not an idea. It's not an abstract thing. It's not this. Thing you can wield to support any policy you want to support it's uh like an obama and bush both did that the obama would say things like in his second inaugural that uh you know he would quote the declaration of independence all people are created equal therefore we need same-sex marriage right and bush would say would quote lincoln's gettysburg address and say the, the proposition that all men are created equal which means we got to bring that to the middle east they would both do this and basically say that true americans will be behind their policies trump doesn't do that Trump, because he doesn't see America as this shining, glowing um, uh, concept that we have yet to live up to. It's a, a dream that we have yet to actually realize. He doesn't see it that way. He sees it as it's here. It's now. It's not It's not in the future. It's right now. America exists. It's the people. And we don't need to fundamentally change anything about this country. We just need to make it great again. It's already here. It's already a good place. Uh, we just want them to be successful. The people who tangibly live here, the people that um, it's their birthright to be here, those who have lineage going back, who have come here and gone through uh, an assimilation process, who have been grafted in like an adoptee, uh, those who are respectful of Americans, institutions, history, religion, etc. That I mean, that's who Trump sees as these are the people that that are American. And that's so different. And, and I don't think people see it all the time, uh, but it, it's the reason that the elites, I think, hate them more than anything else. Is that and and so I would say I'm I'm not like a big um, proponent of like involving Trumpism or Trump in the 1607 stuff. That's not why I'm behind that. I, it's more um, I, I just see Trump though as someone who deviated from the standard modern interpretations of American history and what yeah, America is. 1607 being Jamestown. I believe Glenn Beck has the whole 1620. He chooses that. Or that probably it sounds the, like uh, him. the Puritans yeah. as the founding of America. And he kind of views it as a tension between Jamestown and uh, Plymouth Rock, which I don't 
think is a natural reading of him. You know where the Pilgrims history. are trying to go, right? Yeah, yeah. They were trying to Virginia. go to Jamestown. They were trying to go to Virginia. They, yeah. They just got they, lost. They got a storm that, you know, pulled them off course. So uh, there's not like a huge tension. Uh, if you read like William Bradford's journal and, you know, there you don't see this tension there. I mean, they wanted to be part of what was happening in Virginia. Um, I would say that, yeah, Massachusetts Bay Colony, which the Pilgrims eventually, they kind of got eaten up by. In fact, Massachusetts Bay eventually kind of ate up New York City. <laughs> it was Puritans that kind of ate up, they, they um, uh, moved into the D Dutch colony. And and that was very multicultural, but then it became majority Puritan. And uh, so there is sort of this Northeastern, uh, there is a difference between the two regions. And, and uh, early Americans all could see the differences. Some would say it's the Cavaliers and the Puritans. Some would say, uh, you know, it's it's different. It's other factors. But um, it there are, in that sense, there have always been, at least broadly speaking, two Americas. David Hackett Fisher would say it's more than that. But, um, I, and this is, gets into another territory where I, I would say uh, we're a federal republic. That's what America is. And that's what I think um, it, focusing on Virginia and Jamestown it gives us. 1619 and was the date. What Go is ahead. the alternative to a federal republic? A democracy? Or well, something? We're, the, yeah, the, all these terms are floating around. So the, the argument right now, the, the, this crisis of identity or whatever is uh, you have uh, a nation you know, and, and it's used interchangeably with the word country. We have a country, we have a nation, uh, we have a democracy. These things are all used interchangeably by the modern elites. And I would say... I think accurately speaking uh from the inception of our country to now there's we have a federal republic so we have states that are sovereign we should i don't think that's the case as much anymore but we we should have uh unique regional differences based on that unique ways we're governed because of the different states we live in and um and then we we're we're a republic because we send our uh, representatives to a central location where they make decisions and they're supposed to be decisions that are uh primarily based on foreign policy and uh, interstate commerce. They're, the federal government's really not supposed to be, or the national government, general government's not supposed to have uh, jurisdiction really outside of that. Of course, that's been inflated, you know, at the necessary and proper clause <clears throat> has been greatly stretched. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I mean, the interstate they, they, commerce clause, I think, is the other one that was super stretched. Yeah, those are the two main ones. Uh, but so I would say that, that that's what a federal republic is, that there's there are distinct differences, and that makes a... Um, that gives you flexibility to have actually multiple nations, multiple identities within the same federal republic, which is, I think, what we have. If you if you travel to Seattle and then you go to Auburn, Alabama the next day, which I've done, it's two different worlds. And you wonder to yourself, how can these pe people be in the same country? They speak the same language, kind of, but that's about it. <laughs> like there uh, maybe some of them trace back. You know, they have similar lineage, some of them. But I mean, even that's probably suspect in some ways. There's various immigrant groups that have gone to the Pacific Northwest and other ones that have gone to the South. So they're just a different people, though. They, and they, politically, it comes out very uh, predominantly. But you, you can see it line up in, in religion. You can see you could probably take a whole bunch of even cuisine. I mean, they're very different. So if you have a federal republic and a a nation or a uh, I shouldn't say a nation, but a see, I even have it in my speech patterns. If you have a general government that does not intrude on these local and uh, regional customs and laws, then you can actually live in an alliance in a federal republic with these two diverging areas. But if the central authority controls everything, 
then it makes that very difficult because one side gets control of the government and they're going to impose on th their enemies and the other side gets control and they're going to impose on their enemies politically. So uh, I, I think ideally and what the founders set up was a federal republic that um, that and George Washington said in his first in, or his uh, farewell address, he said, look, we in our federal republic, we are bound together. Uh, and, and he, so he, even at that time there, this concept, they're debating this concept of what makes us kind of a, are we one people? Are we multiple peoples? And Washington tries to bolster up this idea that there's one people based upon the fact that they have similar heritage going back to England, same language and same religion and same, same traditions. So he says this in his farewell address, but this is the same Washington who, while he's in the uh, war for independence, he goes up to New York. And he basically says, yeah, all these people joining my army from Massachusetts are really trashy <laughs> and they're and he doesn't really care for them too much. Uh, it offended his Virginia gentlemanly sensibilities. So it's this has been a tension that's kind of existed since the beginning of a republic, which is why the founders were geniuses to uh, make it a, a federal republic instead of this top down uh, kind of central authority, which is what we're living in now. So this does lead into uh i guess the next topic that i had in mind which was more about the american civil war because and i'll just say for starters was the south a federal republic in their well, they form copied, of government they copied their form of government i mean if you read the confederate constitution and the united states constitution there's very little difference i mean the confederate constitution does acknowledge god they um, uh, explicitly bans the slave trade yeah, it, it, which that, one is of the very things contrary to the popular notion that this was supposed to be some sort of slaving empire in the South. It, it protects the institution of slavery in the in the um, from the central government imposing on the states. But and, and a lot is made of that today that, oh, it's a slave uh, constitution. But really, it, it from the perspective of those who crafted the document, they weren't saying anything that they didn't believe the United States Constitution wasn't already saying. They just this was right. federalism to them. So states. Yeah, ban I originally wanted to write about the Confederacy in that light. And then I read this, the Constitution like it doesn't support this hypothesis that it's it's a pro slavery document. It doesn't. The reading. Yeah, of no, the it's Confederacy not. It, it's, Constitution doesn't support that. Yeah, because the assumption you have to have a modern state assumption, which is we're, we're right. horribly guilty of presentism where we read back our present so, uh, ideas into the past. And that's what's happening with that. I, I guess the hot question I want to ask you is what is the most rip, misrepresented view you have about the South and the Confederacy? Cause this is what people go <laughs> after you for. Yeah. Like, some people do. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things uh, it's most misrepresented view about the South. Well, uh, so if you're talking about the Confederacy in particular, so a, a period of time when the South um, broke, seceded, and form their own general government separate from the North. Uh, it's hard to say because there's so many misconceptions, but uh, I think we just touched on one of them, uh, which is that th this was uh, th the whole intention uh, behind secession. Actually, I'll say this, the whole, I, th what I've told students before is that you have to make a lot of um, distinctions when you're studying this era of history. We we don't do this with other wars. It's, take for instance, World War One, which we discussed at the beginning of this. Uh, or World War II, or even the War for American Independence, we don't look at those things and say, well, it's just one thing. It's just, it's one cause. There, there's, you read the Declaration of Independence, you see, wow, there's there's a lot of different things that factored into this. And most wars are like that. They're complicated. 
except when you get to the American Civil War or the war for Southern independence or the war between the states, uh, whatever you want to call it, there's a, an official dogma today that that was entirely related to the institution of slavery. The South wanted to preserve that institution um, in memoriam, and the North wanted to, uh, because of the goodness of their hearts, uh, destroy the institution. And they had the betterment of the slaves in mind when they went down there and invaded. And um, what I would say is that uh, there, if you make distinctions and realize that the reasons that the Upper South seceded are different than the reasons that the Lower South seceded, that secession, the motivation behind that and the motivation behind going to war are also different motivations. Um, if you make a distinction between the political issue of slavery and the moral issue of slavery, then the whole thing, the, that whole narrative I just gave you, which is the orthodox narrative, it falls apart because um, the, the upper South didn't secede because they were primarily because they were trying to preserve the institution of slavery from northern attacks or anything like that. They were they seceded because guess what? There's an invasion and <laughs> we didn't think we were signing up to be invaded. And so they didn't like the fact that the central government, uh, that the Lincoln administration was willing to invade a sovereign. You're states. Right. Because so uh, you'll have to correct me. You have to fill me in on which states seceded first. But by the time well, was it Tennessee rolls South around, Carolina. Tennessee yes. was like, hey, we don't like the federal mobilization of troops. That's why they invaded, right? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember the but, specific states like Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina. I mean, they don't say anything about slavery in their, um, in their documents, their secession ordinances. Uh, the lower south, there's there's four or five. Uh, Mississippi would probably be Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina. I think, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Florida. Uh, they they mention slavery in their secession documents. Then you have to make a distinction between the political uh, issue of slavery and the moral issue of slavery. For instance, in the Mississippi uh, secession uh, ordinance uh, or declaration, I can't remember which one. I think it's the ordinance. They specifically talk about slavery and say that uh, it's but they, they make sure that, you know, it's the political issue of slavery that they have an issue with. And what is the political issue of slavery? Well, it's not the issue of whether slavery is morally right or wrong. It's the issue of what's constitutionally allowable. Can slaves be taken into the general territories of the United States? Uh, one of the issues in the balance of power in the Congress was whether or not a slave, a state was going to be a free state or a slave state. If it was a slave state, uh, then it, the economic interest would be with the agrarian South. If it was a free state, it would be with the manufacturing North. And there were the Republican Party was very dedicated to this idea of free uh, white labor. They did not want black people. They did not want slaves in those Western territories. They wanted, uh, um, they had a totally different vision for what America uh, economically ought to be. And, uh, and so, um, if you, if this is why bleeding Kansas had such a problem, uh, if you have, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of like Congress being a little cowardice on and indecisive on an issue uh yeah they just kept the, basically kicking the the can down the road they never actually really they, they once they even thought they dealt with it they had never really dealt with it it was splitting the country apart and it was about the balance of power more than really anything else yes there were abolitionists who had a moral issue uh with slavery but and and they did fuel some of the things like john brown and and what he did but um but there's there's a political issue, though, that uh, is really the fuel for the motivation of the lower South to secede. And it's not the only thing. There's a tariff involved as well. There's economic right. things. But tariff would have been huge for 
you know, South Carolina in particular, South, but yeah, yeah, for, for cotton, uh, you know, they, the Lincoln, when he was elected, um, I mean, that was one of the first things was to, uh, to get a tariff in there that was, uh, you know, more oppressive than the previous, uh, rate. And so, so you, you have these issues running together and they would have seen them more as one issue. Not, not they could, they could have made a separation, but it would have been, you know, the same people that want free white labor in the Western territories are the same people who want high tariffs and protectionism and, uh, want to, um, you know, make us essentially, if, if you want to use the concept of slavery, us civil slaves, they want to make the Southern region, um, they want to enslave them economically. And so they would have seen it as actually, ironically, uh, this is a part of our own freedom. Our civil freedom is separating from these people. They won't follow their own constitution, which does not authorize them, uh, to prohibit slavery in the territories, which is, that was one of their big beefs. Um, and, and think about it this way, um, in, from their perspective, allowing slaves into the territories did not uh, increase the number of slaves. It didn't decrease the number of slaves. Right. For, they, already saying, banned the, they already banned the importation of slavery. Right. They already 1808, I believe. Yeah. They're not supposed to import any slaves. Some of that still happened, but they're not supposed to. So it didn't increase or decrease. All it really did was it kept Southern rich Southerners, the, the gentry, the people who would have been, uh, would made up your political class, your elite class, it prohibited them from entering the territory. They couldn't live there. And so uh, that, when you don't have that class of people, your elites, uh, your leaders in a territory, then when it gains statehood, it's going to end up being uh, more in favor of the Northern interests instead of the Southern, because the Southerners are prevented from even going there uh, with their slaves. So that's how they would have viewed it um, at the time. So when um when you know mississippi and texas and south carolina and uh, i think it was florida and georgia when you know when they seceded the lower south uh that was one of the things that they bothered them about it was you know they could not exert their influence and they knew they could see the writing on the wall if these western territories keep becoming free states we're outvoted and uh calhoun john c calhoun saw this 10 years before you know he died 10 years before the civil war and he saw this exact thing happening during the federal period. And which is one of the reasons he was trying to create a, a, a link economically between the South and the Midwest, because they are natural, um, culturally, they're, they're very similar and they're natural allies against the Northeastern interests. But one of the things that helped the Northeast gain the support of the Midwest was this uh, West, the West, wanting the Western territories for free white labor, because that's what, that was in the interest of the Western territories. Uh, they wanted, um, they, they had immigrants coming in, especially from places like Germany, and they wanted to push them farther and farther out West and, and make it a, a white man's country. Essentially, they had actually a racist motivation for, in some ways, uh, for much of this, even many of the abolitionists you'll find their views on race are, in, I mean, they are from the perspective of today, so racist. Just a quick question. How yeah. much of an abolitionist movement or anti-slavery movement was there in the South? You, by the in the 1830s, there were more anti-slavery societies in the South than in the North, but you have to be careful with what you mean by anti-slavery society. There's a difference between uh, what is often called gradual or progressive emancipation and then uh, just uh, abolition. Those were two different things. Well, and I guess so, any of that, I guess. So, yeah, any anti-slavery, any, yeah, there, I mean, it. I would say by the 1840s, um, it was that that was dying out in the south i mean it, there were still 
uh, a lot of Southerners, perhaps even the majority, I would say, uh, would have probably said that slavery is it, inevitably slavery is going to end. Um, like Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee said it was going to be the influence of Christianity would cause it to end eventually, but that it wasn't something that they could immediately end without great devastation and economic consequences. And it would be bad for the slaves as well as for uh, the economy in general. So uh, you would have, I think, had most people would have had this. I mean, like I'll put it this way. Uh, slave traders were like the scourge of society. They were very looked down upon even in the South, in the South and the North. Um, and most of the slave traders were Northerners. It was Northern shipping that brought slaves to the United States, but they were looked down upon. Uh, and so it wasn't considered a very uh, noble profession, shall we say? Right. Um, and, you know, there was a, an idea that this would eventually uh, fizzle out somehow. The question was how to do it. And so there are different strategies and the strategies that the abolitionists wanted, uh, who were in the Northeast primarily, was an immediate end without any compensation or integration. So that was part of what I talked about with the Western territories. We can't integrate slaves into these territories and we don't want them in our territories. There were laws on the books in the North. The first Jim Crow laws were in the North. So they didn't want them up there if they became free. Uh, and that's why the Underground Railroad went to Canada. It didn't go to the Northeast. And uh, one of the reasons, at least, um, the other was the fugitive slave law. But the yeah, the North Northeasterners, uh, they they didn't want to compensate what they had made a profit on because it was the Northeastern shipping interest that made tons of money off of slavery. And then they want, then they got rid of their slaves uh, gradually, but they did not want the South to do the same thing. They wanted to, uh, immediately the, these those, boats would have slaves on them working the ships is what you're talking about. Well, I'm talking about the Northeastern, uh, interests, the, the shipping industry was primarily located in the Northeast. So the main slave ports would have been places like, uh, in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, Boston and New York Harbor. These are where the slaves would primarily come in. And yes, the ships did go down to places like Charleston, but it was Northern ships primarily that were uh, making that voyage. So, um, so, so, you know, if you start at the beginning of the supply chain, uh, it's people, obviously it's tribal warfare and so forth in Africa, but the first the white people, king. yeah, that's not accurate, but the first uh, people that are, you know, that are invested in this are Europeans or in the case of the United States during the federal period, Northeasterners. Uh, in fact, the American flag was even hoisted up, up atop slave ships that weren't American to prevent the British from commandeering the vessel and returning the slaves because it would have been a, they, they weren't allowed to do that. So um, that, that's, that's another thing people don't understand is that that, that was a, a big, uh, there's a lot of resentment, I think in the South for that when, Northerners would paint the South as this horrible place where slaves were mistreated all the time. And that characterized the institution. And it was like a harem. The slave master was just constantly um, having right. sexual, you know, and, and as if this was characteristic. Sally uh, Hemings is every slave. Basically, yeah, that that was every plantation was this way um, by people who hadn't really even been there. Harriet Beecher Stowe had never been down there. And so they're writing these travel novels of places they haven't been. It's it's. It, it, and, and they gained a resentment from it because they said, listen, you you were the ones, your society is the one that sold them to us in the first place and to, to our planter class. So it's a again, we're getting into an issue that's very complicated. It, it uh, is very complicated. But in the grand scheme of things, like the amount of Southerners that owned a slave was not very large, proportionately. 
Yeah, I was, you know, I, I imagine it was a 90 10 principle or an 80 20 principle in terms of 80% of the slaves. Generally, they'll, you know, sons of, of Confederate veterans will say things like it's, you know, 5%, uh, you know, of the, you know, 5% or 6% of slaves that ended up in the United States, uh, those who in the South, and there were, there were actually still slaveholders in some of the Northern states, by the way. <laughs> Maryland still had slaves. Uh, right. parts of, you know, Kentucky still had slaves. I mean, there was, there was a few States that still had slaves. Washington DC still had slaves during the war, but, um, but, you know, pr predominantly it was in the South and, uh, it, you know, 5% of the people, the white Southerners, but it, it's probably a more accurate metric to sit, take family families. And so of the families, um, that per, per a family, it was like 15% of families, something like that, um, own slaves. So yeah, it was a minority of the right. people. And I guess but the it, other thing to take into consideration is if the treatment was as bad as, you know, as depicted, there would have been more slave uprisings. Historically well, speaking, you know, Rome would have been like your worst. You know, if you've ever heard of Spartacus, he was part of, I believe, the third servile rebellion. Yeah. And so not even the first two. So we didn't have that in the United States. Uh, John Brown would probably be the most famous example. Nat Turner's killed, probably the most and he famous. He killed a uh, uh, black person, I believe. Yeah, John Brown. I don't know if that's considered a slave uprising. That was. I, I know, but he tried. Yeah, he tried. He, to do he that, wanted though. one. Yeah, and it didn't work. They didn't really side with him. Um, Nat Turner is probably the most famous case. There, there were actually a few attempts. Um, yeah, there are, but it seemed like they were like murder sprees. Yeah, they were they were not anything like what you're talking about with Spartacus. It didn't catch on yeah. like that. Uh, it was, you know, it, a lot of it. This is one of the fears that Southerners had about uh, abolitionist literature, because uh, during the postal crisis, and there were two of them there. The South was flooded with uh, anti-slavery abolition uh, pamphlets, and some of them would actually encourage slaves to uh, rebel against their masters and, and do these kinds of things. And that's why Virginia, you know, even when they were on the precipice of allowing, you know, uh, of being more lenient with slavery, they vote, let's not let them read. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it, today it sounds so horrible. And I would obviously disagree with that. I think it's wrong. But from their perspective, they're thinking, man, if they read these abolitionist pamphlets that are coming down here and these abolitionists, um, they even had missionaries that would come down and they said they're going to preach the full gospel, which meant rebel against your master. Uh, we're going to have slave uprisings. So there was a fear in the South about slave uprisings. Um, but you're right. There weren't uh, the best time for a slave uprising would have been during the war when all the men are out fighting on the front, uh, you know, fighting battles. And a lot of these farms and plantations are being taken care of by the slaves. And you didn't see uprisings, which is you, you got to figure yeah, the out free why state is of that? Jones, which is a movie based off a true story. But that's about it's, it. It's right? somewhat mythical, though. Yeah. There's a good uh, article on the Abbeville Institute did a whole thing on that movie and it's it's not accurate exactly. But um, I mean, there are you could point even that, though, even that is not it's not anything like what you would expect uh, if. Um, it, well, as you said, if uh, they had an opportunity and if the conditions were uh, as you know horrific, then that would have been the time. Uh, and the South, yeah. by the end of the war, would allow uh, slaves to earn freedom through service. Yeah, too late. By the, <laughs> yeah, too late. Too little, too was, late. But by the end of the was, war, um, they did. Robert E. Lee wanted that for a while. He wanted. He thought it was a great idea. 
to give slaves their freedom in return for fighting for the Confederacy. And, because and they had were, a numerical disadvantage, among did. other reasons. And and slave and there were already slaves who were fighting. They weren't uh, perhaps official, right? Um, you know, uh, members of the army. But you look at like uh, c Confederate reunions, and you'll see black people in the pictures. You'll see, um, uh, I mean, some of the most famous soldiers with Nathan Bedford Forrest were his slaves that he freed, and they were savage. You know, uh, Holt Collier, where we get the uh, I this uh, concept of the teddy bear from, because he was the one that took uh, Theodore Roosevelt as a, a guide. Um, and they found this teddy bear and, uh, or he, he had a teddy bear tied up and, you know, Theodore Roosevelt said, I ain't going to shoot a teddy bear that's tied up. That was Holt Collier. He was a, a famous hunter in Mississippi, but he was, a, he was fighting with the Confederacy and he was a, 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 with his master. So there, there was a lot of that that happened. Um, so, they would receive some of them pensions, even from the Confederate, uh, from various state governments. But uh, yeah, that's not, it, it kind of pokes an eye in the narrative. And so that, that's the kind of history that ends up getting covered up, unfortunately. Um, and, and it was it was late in the war. But I think there there should be some credit that the moral will. This is the this is the key thing here. The moral will to get rid of slavery did exist in the South. And the fact that um, they prioritize independence over slavery. Yes. To the point where they would allow slaves to earn freedom through service. The question was how the question was how. Right. And that was always that was from the time of Thomas Jefferson, who said, we have the dog by the ears. We don't know what to do with them. That was the question. How do we get rid of this institution? We have and no easy way out. This is not even close to the issue of abortion where we could cut it off. And that would solve a lot of problems immediately. Oh, no, no. And, and that's one of the and, big mistakes of the pro-life and, and especially the abolition. Right. Movement is they, they want to equate abortion to constantly. Slavery and it's just no it, abortion is actually way worse, in my opinion. That's murder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's absolute that, murder. That, that's primary number one reasons. Second, like we can cut it off instantly and we don't even have to um, ease it out. And then yeah, it, it goes directly contrary to a moral will of God. I think the best you yeah. can say with slavery, what you could say is that uh, it's uh, like things like polygamy and, and other things that God allowed and regulated the principles behind it. The, um, in, the the practice of the institution ends up putting you in these scenarios that undercut the law of God, that undercut uh, biblical principles. You could probably right. say that, yeah. uh, which is why we need to phase this out. Um, it, and that's it, why Christians have generally supported ending slavery, like in Rome or in actually, I believe Mexico was the first nation to end slavery. Then England, but only in England, not even the rest of the colonies, I believe. So I don't really give them credit for that. And then the United States. Yeah, the but, United States. Well, they weren't the last. Brazil was the last in the Western world for them. Well, I, I was saying we were like the really two and a half or depending on how you want to measure it because england only banned yeah you know, they got it banned in the england british isles i think but not in the rest of the colonies yeah so i don't really yeah it is it unique to uh so we we're like number two really society's okay. influenced by christianity uh are um they uniquely have a drive to get rid of that so particular I, I gotta get your hot i gotta get your hot take on this robert e lee or stonewall jackson who was the better general uh, well, it's hard to say. I mean, they're they're different, and they work. Well it it definitely went downhill when Stonewall Jackson died. 
Yeah, I mean, if he didn't die, there's people who uh, speculate yeah. would the South have actually won uh, the war despite their inferior numbers and supplies. But um, I mean, I they're very different. Jackson was uh, the much... Shenandoah Valley campaign of Stonewall Jackson is a textbook example of defeating a numerically superior force uh, through detail. Yes. I think that is just I think that was a really impressive campaign. Yeah, so uh robert e lee probably was a better strategist and stonewall ja jackson was a better uh tactician so strategy being this uh kind of you can look at all the chess pieces on the map and right. make kind of big decisions and determinations of what direction you need to go uh versus um kind of zoomed in on the minutiae and what do we do in this particular scenario in this battle uh, stonewall jackson was just very aggressive very fearless um he inspired his men and just, I mean, he, the men loved him, even though he's really weird. Honestly, he was very, uh, he was an unusual character in many ways. Um, Robert E. Lee was, it, it, they were very different too, in the sense that Robert E. Lee was this uh, Anglican kind of gentlemanly figure where Stonewall Jackson was more of a Scotch Irish Presbyterian, uh, just, you know, kind of more aggressive, more, um, you know, Robert Lee had a lot of uh, self-control, I say, and they both did, but they're they're just different personalities, and that kind of showed itself out. Uh, on the that they worked exceedingly well together. They uh, did, yeah. Kind of alluded to. They did, they did. Um, yeah, the Northern generals were generally not as uh, good. They, you know, it's hard to even look at. You know, which which I general mean, was actually uh, Grant, Grant would probably be their best general. Uh, yeah, there's an effort right he, now to kind of. I don't of think make he's him better a, than either of those two. No, uh, not even close. Lee or no. Jackson, like no one really can. I don't think most people consider him a top two general in the Civil War, uh, even if he is the eventual face of the Northern. Uh, side. Yeah, I mean, his strategy was generally we have a superior force go. <laughs> so I mean, that's the only strategy he needs. But that's all, all he needed, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I don't. I'm not going to say he was as a bad general. I, no, I don't think he's a bad general. If you want to look at bad generals, you look at everyone that was before him, except Burnside, maybe yeah, uh, Hooker and all these other people. But uh, who would you say is the best general in American history? <laughs> Robert E. Lee probably is. Uh, I mean, that's what Winston Churchill thought. He thought that Robert E. Lee was the best. Um, I don't remember if he said world history or American, but. I mean, um, world history, like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I'd probably say Julius Caesar. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, Robert E. Lee's, though, uh, I think what Winston Churchill said, he's the best uh, military mind that the West or the uh, English-speaking peoples have ever produced. I believe that's what he said about Lee, so Anglo-American, but um, I, I would say Lee. And in American history, yeah, I would say Lee is probably your your best general, even though I mean he lost uh, the the war. But you know, yeah. if you look at what he had available to him, he did wonders with. Uh, yeah, he, he's not an Erwin Rommel, who I think is highly overrated. Uh, oh well, he was a very good general, in my opinion. He lost in Africa. He took a vacation during D Day, which was ill advised. Yeah, supposedly like, suicided himself, <laughs> but probably was assassinated. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I think he had the option to suicide with honor or. Right, right. That was it. Yes, <laughs> I remember it was that. But I think he was overrated. Like, I don't see him as the uh, at respectable adversary that he's kind of gets painted. But Robert E. Lee would be your textbook example of like 
great general on the other side of the war. And that's why the North wanted him, right? So Yeah, he was given the opportunity to command the Northern forces, the Army of the Potomac, and he declined. So um, I mean, and that's one of the first round that, draft pick, you know, holds out for his home team. It's basically yeah, people like Alan Golzo. They don't they I don't know what it is about them. I mean, he's been um, kind of supported by Big Eva. He's written for Gospel Coalition. And uh, I'm trying to think there. I saw him. He was on a podcast not too long ago with uh, Kevin DeYoung. But, you know, he is just, you know, he thinks Robert E. Lee was a traitor to his country and all this. And I'm like. And this is, again, presentism. This is taking assumptions of the current day and, and imposing them on the past. From Robert Lee's perspective, when he lived, it was a federal republic. And a loyalty to Virginia was of a primary concern over loyalty to the general government. And so right. he had to be with his people. And that's a noble thing. And uh, that's something we need to get back to is figuring out who are your people. And, you know, you can't help but pick your families, right? They're, they're there. You're, uh, you're born into a family, you're born into a society and it could be good. It could be bad. It could be positives and negatives, no matter what that is. I don't care if you're in an urban area. I don't care if you're black, white, Asian, purple, you know, what, I don't care what, whatever you are. I think it's good to reflect on who, who are your people? We have a big identity crisis today. And, and primarily for Christians, obviously the uh, church, the brothers and sisters in Christ is, a primary spiritual identity, but I'm not completely talking about that. I'm talking about in this uh, physical realm and in, in the um, temporal realm, you know, who are the people that you have obligations to loyalties to responsibilities toward. Uh, and I think when people reflect on that, it helps them order their lives a little bit better and serve the people that uh, they ought to be. And so Lee was able to do that. He, he could tell the difference between, um, you know, a, a, an offer that honestly, if he would have been successful and he would have been, he would have won the war for the North quicker. He could have been president of the United States. I mean, he was that popular. He was popular after the war. New York banks were using him to sell, to, to get people to bank with them. And I mean, he was just, oh, wow. uh, I mean, they wanted, they wanted to, he, he declined it, but um, yeah, his image was being used in the North. They, people, both sides loved him. And he said, no, my responsibility is to my home. And that's why after the war, he went and worked at Washington College because he thought it was his responsibility to prepare the young men of the South to face the responsibility of now growing up in this war-torn uh, economy and uh, to behave like gentlemen at a time when there was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of violence. There was, uh, I mean, yeah. the, the Reconstruction period is... A, is a, he wanted gosh, people to be decent men during indecent times. Basically, yeah. He, could, he knew who his people were and who he had an obligation toward. And so, it's something to respect. So you did a video, maybe it was like a year ago, about uh, Warren Harding, kind of basically painting him as an uh, underrated figure in American history. So who do you say is the most underrated president in the United States? Would you say it's Warren <laughs> probably Harding? Warren Harding? Yeah, I mean, or I mean, yeah, Warren Harding is definitely up there. Um, yeah, because he's in the he's in the conversation for being like most people would have him ranked in like the bottom five, but yeah. he doesn't deserve to be in the conversation for worst president. Like, you not put him with like, this... yeah, Benjamin Harrison or Howard Taft or some of these other presidents. You don't, you can't really list achievements of theirs uh, too readily. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. It's, um, I think Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge definitely deserve a lot of credit for uh, taking us out of the progressive era and giving us policies that led to the booming 20s, an economic boom. It's not examined enough, I think, what they did. They, de they were deregulators. They were uh, they were real conservatives that honestly 
conservatives today should be looking back to for inspiration. They shouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't be looking we at MLK. Over look at Reagan to some degree. We, we look too much at Reagan. It's, it's now, now it's not even Reagan as much. It's like MLK and Abraham Lincoln are like, you know, that's oh. like, supposedly these are the conservative heroes, which both of them would have been progressive in the time they lived. And the conservatives would have opposed them. I mean, suspending habeas corpus, uh, you know, central banking, um, you know, uh, unconstitutional. Yeah, that that, that kind of makes you think that uh, a lot of these early presidents, you know, uh, John Adams would be underrated, you mm -hmm. know, by comparison to his successors, Quincy Adams, even uh, a lot of these one term presidents that were early on in American history. Uh, I mean, James Polk is probably the best one term president. Is he, yeah, you know, I don't even think, I don't think he ran for a second term, but in terms of he accomplished in four years was expanding America's territory. He settled the Northern dispute, Northwestern mm -hmm. dispute and, uh, annexed Texas and, uh, uh, defeated Mexico pretty handily. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good accomplishment, but, and he did that in one term, I think, but otherwise, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. He was a, a, uh, general, I believe, before uh, that was at the time when we elected a lot of generals to public. Oh, really? Office. He was a general too. I knew we had like seven presidents that were generals. I didn't think he was one of them, but yeah, I think he was. Uh, I'm looking it up just to did make he, sure that I'm not. Did he fight uh, in a war or? He's a four-star general. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, I, I gotta I believe. No, hold on. Then. That's a different James. That doesn't make any sense. Hold on. That's There's a different a... James Polk. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, no, I thought he was. Uh, if I'm, if my. Um, memory serves me correct i thought he was in involved in some indian wars and that was one of the things that uh, uh there's uh william henry harrison was a general from that uh yeah in the battle of tippy canoe so there's that. yeah maybe Andrew i'm thinking Jackson, of... and then uh zachary taylor yeah i'm thinking of, i'm thinking you know of... what I'm, i think what i'm doing is i'm associating polk with zachary taylor and that's probably okay there we go. What I did there. But yeah, so despite uh, having a, a master's in history and a bachelor's, I, I don't uh, remember everything from early American history. <laughs> but, so. Uh, yeah. But I, yeah, I, 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 you know, he may be uh, the you may have a, a good argument there. I because I know a little more about Warren Harding because I, I read about. I him, agree. He's I definitely probably, one of the most underrated because when you run on keeping America out of the League of Nations, which is based, uh, he kept his promise. He was the good solution to uh, yeah, presidents we had before. I think he earned a little teapot dome scandal, which was really his administration, not him. Right. So, yeah, he wasn't really responsible for that. It's as far as we know, I mean, we we have a limited record to some extent. But um, yeah, I mean, people hated him. I mean, they, there was all sorts of rumors going on about him that he was even that he had uh, black lineage and stuff, which at the time that was scandalous, you know, scandalous. To I mean, because if you think about Plessy versus in the north, Ferguson, he was a, he was from Ohio. <laughs> uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. The guy was one eighth black. Uh, Plessy, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I, I think weird. it was I was reading the other day who was it uh, the William Lloyd Garrison right who like the abolitionists abortion abolitionists love to look back to he was the guy he was the consistent Christian which I'm like really William Lloyd Garrison he wasn't even an Orthodox believer but uh, but he William Lloyd Garrison said uh, so he wanted to get rid of laws that prohibited interracial marriage right you say okay woohoo great for him and then but he says when he does this he goes well I support I would support getting rid of those laws, but it's not because I want black and white people to marry. I don't want that. I just think that we should get well, like we, we for the okay. sake of this abstract equality thing, we should get rid of them. But I don't want people to actually do it. 
and this is like your chief abolitionist guy. So oh, wow. it's it's people. This is where the 1619 project actually gets some things correct in that. Yes, there was uh, discrimination against other ethnicities, including black people uh, for hundreds of years. There was you can't deny that. Uh, the 1776 project tries to kind of paint it as well. We weren't living up to our ideals completely, but hey, look at the founders who wanted to get rid of slavery. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, they would have held racial views that are totally inconsistent with today's views. The same with the abolitionists. Right. They would have held views that are totally inconsistent with what we believe today. So um, that that's where I'm with 1607. Like, I'm not into sugarcoating that stuff. I think you just tell the story. Yeah, and then exactly. you can you can look back and you can say, hey, isn't it great that we built up trust between these different ethnic groups and that now um, we, we're, we've come to the point that we're at or <laughs> as the case may be now we are devolving. But uh, but we can at least celebrate some achievements here and not because of some ideal. It's just because of uh, people coming together and, um, and and building trust in one another. And that's the strength of the American people. And we can do that. So, so I guess in the. Uh, Ops to flip the question around. Who is the most overrated president in American history? Lincoln. <laughs> there's okay. in my mind, there's no that doubt. That is a yet. hot take. That is a hot take for you know, just in general. But I don't think you're completely wrong because I don't think he was the best president. I don't uh, know how I, it's I would a say success. Lyndon Johnson certainly in the conversation. FDR, I think I almost worked at the LBJ library. I almost got a job there. <laughs> and uh I asked them, I asked the guy, I said, Do I have to um like forward or support Lyndon Baines Johnson's policies if I work at the presidential library. And he goes, well, yeah, that's part of it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to do it then. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, well, I'll work there if I don't have to support his policy. Like, I don't know what I thought I'd do, just undercut the great society. But uh, yeah, I mean, Johnson, I think FDR is definitely up there as well. He's like, he might, I would say probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I probably would have said FDR. So, yeah, FDR is the most overrated president here. I mean, he gets credit for stopping the Great Depression and um, and and, and uh, kind of gets the, America into World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, like, you know, winning World War Two, even though Truman. But but at the same time, I'm like, no, actually, he like fomented the Great Depression. He made it worse. And he's the one that got us into it in, in the worst way possible. Like it, it just I, I don't think FDR was a good president at all. And we're still dealing with the crud that he put the like social security and I, exactly uh, and, big government you know, initiatives. The embarrassment um, of the Republican party then was that in 1936, they elected their Mitt Romney equivalent. who was pro social security, <laughs> but we just are funding it wrong. It shouldn't be an income tax or yeah. something like that. It's like what a Mitt Romney, but oh, that's, that's who they I mean, elected. That's Alfred the, uh... Landon is, is that candidate's name. He's Alfred uh, Landon. Okay. He's 1936 governor of Kansas, which is why he was, uh, I guess the nominee. So in that vein, who would you say is the worst president in American oh, okay. history? Overrated Lincoln. Okay. Worst man. Um, I mean, a lot of people say Woodrow Wilson. I mean, the one we got is pretty bad. <laughs> Joe Biden is pretty bad. Um, yeah, it, it, it depends what metric you want to use. Okay, so if you want to use like uh, the how many people died under their watch, you know, without or or people that I mean, Lincoln again is up there. Um, I would say Woodrow Wilson is definitely up there too. It's, it's mean, hard. It's hard to pick between like Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln Wilson. at least is competent. I don't think, you know, even a hater of Lincoln can't really say he was incompetent or wholly incompetent. I don't know if incompetent. He, he was a good lawyer. So, I mean, he was a decent lawyer at least. Uh, so, like, I yeah. don't know. Joe, 
Joe Biden's administration, I don't think is necessarily incompetent. Jimmy Carter's would probably be incompetent. If you're measuring you got, it by competence, then yes, I don't think Lincoln's yeah, not I don't at the think top it's of that the, one. I don't think it's the best metric. I mean, Woodrow Wilson's just classic example, I guess. So this is the metric but, I think of, but like who expanded government the most and ripped up the constitution. That's how I think of it. The worst president. And so Lincoln definitely is up there because he got the ball rolling uh, in the worst way in this. I mean, some people point to Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. Some I think the Louisiana to... Purchase was within the government's power. Like, yeah, I think I think so you too, wanted him actually. to solve an issue like that's a national security thing. You just prevented any war with France. You eventually would allude to the Monroe Doctrine, which would succeed mm -hmm. him. But you just did Dinesh that. D'Souza American has, territory. Um, that's a good. Thing. It, I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't put I put Jefferson as one of the best. Um, I think um, the Jackson gets a, a bad rap today because of Dinesh D'Souza in uh, conservative circles. Uh, Jackson was based against central <laughs> banking and then is on the twenty dollar bill. So I, I don't know if that's. a Yeah, no, I, I don't agree with or... like there's certain things with Jackson. I think we could disagree with him, but it's a mixed bag with Jackson. And um, and he was I, I wouldn't say that he was anywhere near the worst. So I would say. Um, you know, let's let's do it a tie with uh, Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson. And um, since Joe Biden hasn't finished out one term, let's just say Barack Obama. Let's say those three are tied. <laughs> let's say Woodrow Wilson. I mean, the progressive amendments just destroyed and wrecked America. They were like the Taco Bell on steroids and cocaine on our system. I, yeah, but I, I don't know about the 14th Amendment due process and or the, the incorporation rather has. I think that has been a, a death knell. Uh, that's that's where I I'm gonna weigh it against that. And, and I know Lincoln wasn't but the even president after but, the Civil War. America yeah. had good times, good presidents, and then uh, you know un underrated presidents. Uh, uh, Cleveland was an underrated president. Grover uh, Cleveland, yeah, yeah, yeah underrated. So? Yeah, I mean for yeah, a Democrat. It, it, <laughs> well, that the Democrats weren't the same. Grover I, Cleveland I know, they was probably the, same, the last but it's, conservative but, Democrat. Yeah, he was. He would have been a conservative Democrat. So I guess uh, flip the question around. I think this one might be easier. Best president. Because I would say Thomas Jefferson. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you want to say Washington just because he's like the best all around guy. But, he's the best American hero. But, but his as far eight as, years as president, I don't think we're. Yeah, it was a lot of conflict. He he was uh, kind of he he got under the Hamiltonian influence too much. But I think Jefferson is definitely, in my mind, up there. Um, especially, I love I love the fact that his disregard for the Supreme Court is just classic in my mind. I love it. Uh, uh, wait, are you talking about the Madison? Well, there's Marbury Madison there, but yeah. no Jefferson like. Um, Jefferson just disregarded what like there if there was a decision they made against him he just didn't care he's like yeah there's the Supreme Court we don't care and I just some of the quotes that when the Supreme Court overplays their hand on something they always like whip out Jefferson quotes against the Supreme Court um that's not the that's not the main reason though I just think um I mean Jefferson was a uh I, his philosophy of government was more based in states and local authority and control and uh he was agrarian and so i mean th those are the things i think i like about him i mean some things that come to mind louisiana purchase i'm higher on presidents that expand america's borders uh so you know, he just doubled the size of america in a good way so louisiana purchase that was a bargain way cheaper than fighting a war mm -hmm. over that and then 
the Barbary Wars. Barbary Pirates, yeah. It, that's a huge accomplishment to say that we're not just going to pay tribute to these podunk pirates off the coast of Tripoli. And you, you got the birth of the Marine Corps uh, from that. And so I just, you know, you're standing up for America there. So that's great. And otherwise, yeah, again, I think he did. He was a mm -hmm. pretty good president otherwise. But isn't it funny that most people's answers for the best president would come from generally your first seven presidents? Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Or, or, I mean, it's like it's gone downhill since then. Lincoln gets a a, a lot now oh, too. He, uh, um, Reagan, if you're a conservative, can get a lot. I think Reagan was a good president, but I don't think he, most people would consider him the best, even on the right. Yeah. So, but many. I mean, I guess Washington's your most popular answer. I, I have. He's the only president I have a, a picture of in my office is Reagan. <laughs> I think Wa Jefferson's probably my answer because I want to be a little bit contrarian. But yeah, I mean, I, I like uh, I like people I'm related to. I like Zachary Taylor. <laughs> so I'm related I, to him. He's underrated. He's a very Trumpian figure because he kind of wrecked the political party in the process of becoming president. Yeah. Hated by both sides, but kind of loved by the people. Uh, I think Jefferson War Davis married his daughter, too, if I'm not mistaken. Married his daughter. Yeah, Zachary daughter. Taylor's daughter. Not his yeah. own daughter, because that would be weird. Um, no, that'd be really weird. Um, yeah, you know, if you really want to be based, you just say Jefferson Davis was the best president. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know much about his presidency, to be honest. Well, there was a war and they lost. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. I mean, he he wasn't he had good and bad points. Um, if Calhoun was still around and was able to be president, it would have been much better probably for the South. But um, but Dave, Davis is a um, I don't know. He's a remarkable figure in some ways. He's uh somewhat innovative on as far as like um you know his problem was this was this was his problem in his cabinet was there were so many competing interests and he did not know how to make like firm decisions to reward some and and that and punish others he and he, he just, had a time limit because of the he did imminent threat and, but you know figure out like how you would govern if you were in immediately cast into a war situation and it's not easy so you have to give him that but um, but yeah, so yeah, I think we're probably pretty similar. Jefferson, definitely. I'd say Harding's up there uh, in my mind uh, as well. Uh, I think Grover Cleveland was a good president. I think, um, yeah, um, I, I guess in the modern day, uh, probably, you know, people are going to be probably, I, I'd have to flesh this out too much, but Trump might be up there in my mind. Even Trump's easily the best president of my lifetime. Of my lifetime. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind of my lifetime. He's the best president. Um, and even despite the the things I disagree I, with. I wish I was a higher on. bar, but that's you right. Know, that, that's the lament. It should be a higher bar, but yeah. Uh, he, yeah. You know, the only time I set the bar low is limbo in the famous words of Michael Scott. But, you know, Trump just walked over a you know, us like one of those kitty hurdles or whatever. It, it was a very <laughs> low bar. Right, right. So yeah, it's all downhill or maybe uphill from here. We'll see. So anyway, uh, Lord. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I think that's kind of concludes all my questions. I know you got to head on out soon. So how about you plug some books uh, where can people find you? 
Uh, worldviewconversation.com is my website and uh, you can go to Amazon even if you want to get books there. I sell them. I sell autograph copies, but uh, Christianity and social justice and then social justice goes to church are both available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, I think. Uh, so yeah. All right. And like I said, if you stuck around this long and haven't subscribed, what are you doing? Uh, also drop a like button because that helps with the magical YouTube algorithms. If you, again, want to really support this kind of content, evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join is where you can go to do that Patreon-like system. Have a blessed day and we will catch you on the next one. All right. Sounds good. Thank you.